When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Z-Pack, it's Dr. Zubin Nemanja, Z-Dog MD, if you're nasty. Uh, welcome to the show, the Z-Dog MD show. Today, I'm having a guest that I've been wanting to have on ever since I saw her talk on how COVID-19 might be transmitted, particularly in hospital settings, and what we can do to keep our own selves from getting sick or becoming vectors of transmission and harming our patients. Uh, Dr. Gloria Huang is a clinical associate professor of radiology at my favorite place, Stanford. We go way back, all the way back to my training days, and my wife uh, and her shared a lot of training as well. Uh, Dr. Huang has been tasked at Stanford on the radiology side with quality improvement in particular around COVID and gave an amazing talk that I was privileged to be able to watch. And I, the minute I saw it, I was like, Z-Pak, I gotta get her on the show and have her teach us about this because I think it's gonna be super helpful. Gloria, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Are you in your office there at Stanford? I am in my office here at Stanford. I am socially distanced from everyone in this office. I challenge you to find this office. You know what? That sounds like a radiologist. You guys do social distancing at baseline. Like this is like natural for you. <laughs> we are the masters of social distancing. That's true. That's true. So tell me, so because the talk that you gave was actually interesting because it also really focused on how is it that radiology cannot, first of all, get themselves all sick, which would be a bummer, or become a vector and transmit to patients. So you went on this mission to review all the available data that you could and present it to your team. And kind of what was, what's your sort of, um, what did you come up with in the end? Like what, how do you think about this? So the reason I went and did this was there was still really a lot of uncertainty about what we were supposed to do. Um, People were still between their taking care of patients, they'd be like standing in the hallways close together, talking to each other. Um, and then they go home and they'd be spaced out. It'd be socially distant at home and they come to work and it still felt like being at work. And and so one thought was like, really, like what is the data on this? Are we actually doing everything we can to protect ourselves and our patients? And, and I also was wondering like, where did people come up with ideas like the six foot rule? Like why are we supposed to space ourselves six foot apart? And so I, I dug into the literature and I, and I found some pretty amazing and horrifying things that I just didn't realize uh, was true until, until I went into literature. For example, um, why do we have to stay six feet apart from each other? People, um, people with influenza, they came in through the emergency room or they were inpatients and air samples were taken from around these patients. And what these researchers found was that the air samples up to six feet away from these patients had virus particles in them. And so even patients who are not coughing, who are just passively breathing, were putting out these vapor clouds that spread six feet apart. And and that is how the viruses are transmitted. And you might say, well, maybe the viruses are just in those big particles that you spray when you're coughing or sneezing, but they actually didn't find that to be the case, at least with the flu. They found that the majority of the flu particles were in those really, really small droplets that traveled the furthest away from you. 
And at that time, I think people weren't quite sure whether that translated to coronavirus, which is a pretty similar sized viral particle to the flu. But I think lately, as we could see in the news and in the literature, people are saying, yeah, that's probably happening with coronavirus too. It's really interesting because again, influenza, it, the sort of mechanisms that you would use to control coronavirus that they've been using in Asia and, and elsewhere, you would think then would also control the spread of influenza, but either they're spread differently or more likely influenza is actually just so prevalent that it's so out of the bag that, that even though in those quarantines, like they're not seeing decreased rates of influenza, which is interesting. So that's an interesting little twist on that. But yeah, that study in the ER where they were, they were measuring how, what's this viral cloud around people, this little electron cloud where you, you don't wanna enter, and that's where the six feet came from. But again, we're extrapolating, right? Because we don't even know, is that six foot radius where they're detecting virus, is it an infectious dose that's actually sufficient to make someone sick? Was there any data on infectious dose? I bet there's not. No, I don't think we really know what the infectious dose is. There, there's still so much we just don't know about COVID-19. We don't know what the infectious dose is. What we do know is it sticks around for a really, really long time once it gets onto a surface. There was that paper in the New England Journal that showed that um, when it hit plastic or stainless steel, it could stick around for 72 hours, three days. Um, on cardboard, 24 hours, which was actually worse than the original SARS virus from 2003. Three. That would stick around on cardboard for six hours. This stuck around for a full day. And then people people actually went through the um, Diamond Princess cruise ship and they took samples off of the surfaces of the rooms where people tested COVID positive. Some of those people were symptomatic, some were asymptomatic, and they found virus on the surfaces 17 days later. Ah, and that see, and that's another thing that we should think about when we and, and I want to make sure we clarify terminology here. People are throwing around the term airborne, airborne transmission, but that's a very specific has a very specific meaning in epidemiology and infectious disease. It means that that's these right. are tiny particles, right, that hang in the air for hours and hours and hours like measles. But something can be transmitted by an air route like coronavirus, but it's in the larger droplets, medium or larger droplets that that technically might fall off at six feet. So that's a lot of confusion. People are like, it's airborne, it's airborne. Well, yeah, it can be transmitted via air, but it's not technically airborne in the sense that say measles is. Is that what the research that you saw so far was corroborating? It's 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 true. And I think what people don't know is how long it can stick around in the air. And again, right. we don't know what the infectious dose is. For example, if you do an aerosolizing procedure, um, particles that might not have normally been in the air might stick around a little longer. Um, if there's air turbulence, um, there might then the particles could potentially stay around longer. We just don't know with um, potential turbulence either um, because of coughing or or um, just the way that air is being moved in a room, wh whether the particles may stay airborne longer or not. And that's a very important point because again, and also what is the effect of sneezing and coughing? Active expelling is at a farther distance than six feet. Now you mentioned Diamond Princess, which, which it feels right, doesn't it? But if you look at Diamond <laughs> Princess, like you said, so something like 20% of everybody on that ship ultimately tested positive um, and of those, that tested positive, only around 18% remained asymptomatic for the duration, Correct. but that's still a large component and they were that's, older. Yeah. 
That's they're older. That's right. That was a large component. I mean, originally 50% were asymptomatic, but then the majority of those people eventually developed symptoms. So that, that left 18% who were asymptomatic. But if you look at the population on the cruise ship, they did trend older and they didn't just randomly test everyone on the cruise ship. It went sequentially. So they started with people who were symptomatic and only at the tail end did they test people who were asymptomatic. So you would think, you think that in a random population, if you just tested people um, randomly, then you'd expect a number higher than 20%. And, and, and you, I think that we're, we're now thinking 25%-ish based on other data. Asymptomatic, right. And you'd mentioned that. And then looping it back to what you said about uh, finding it up to 17 days on surfaces. So I think one of the things that I learned from your talk was that this thing, <laughs> once it's expelled, it's on surfaces. <laughs> and when you're touching surfaces, touching your mucous membranes, that's a, that can be a major transmission route. And what seemed to, to, some of that data seems to imply, especially on the Diamond uh, Princess, not everybody got sick, right? But it seems to cluster in close, sustained contact. And they found that in, in the Singaporean Korean data as well that you had reviewed. Can you talk a little bit about that? There, we do know that with close, sustained contact, there is more likely to be transmission. For example, if um, you have a close contact with someone who is COVID positive, who is a family member, 10% likelihood of of, um, of becoming COVID positive versus out in the community, each point of contact is more like 0.4% likelihood of converting to becoming COVID positive. And, and so that does seem to imply that um, some of it might be aerosol, but there probably has, it probably has a lot to do with the surfaces that people are contacting. When you're close to someone, you're probably touching things that they touch. And what people don't realize is how often they touch their faces. For example, um, if someone just happens to be breathing on a table and and they're COVID positive and, and virus is accumulating on the table, you might just unthinkingly put your hand on the table. It looks like a clean table. And then your hand may go to your face. They did a study on medical students and these medical students who knew about infection control, they got the lecture on infection control. They touched their faces an average of 23 times per hour. And about half of those times were to their mucous membranes, which is Probably how we all catch our colds every year. I, you know what? It's hilarious. I've never seen a population, a cohort that picks their nose more than medical students. Like they are just <laughs> gross. Um, no, no. But this is this is key because you. It's an unconscious thing because we're not mindful of it, and it's surface to mucous membrane and that close contact. You said something really remarkable, which I remember taking out of your talk, which was 0.45 percent of. Um, people will get infected from a contact with somebody out in the community that is positive. So there's a contact, but 10% of close family and close contacts get infected. It is, uh, uh, it seems, uh, again, surfaces and prolonged close contact are key. It's not like you're just walking through a vapor cloud and you're getting infected. That's very unusual. It seems more that it's this close contact. And there's some data from China that when they sent people home initially to quarantine, home quarantine, all they managed to do was infect their families, some of whom got very sick, came to the hospital <laughs> yes. and infected healthcare professionals because they didn't understand yet the dynamics of the spread. Um, what, what do you, so one thing that you said also in the talk that relates to Diamond Princess relates to contact, in feces, so the median, what, yes. yeah, tell me about how long <laughs> this thing is shed in, in the air and then in the poop because it's different. I, I, 
Yeah, so that is a thing. And you can, again, be totally asymptomatic from COVID, be COVID positive and not be aware of it and have the virus shed in your feces. This was actually shown in the case report on a child who infected some family members. Mm. But what they found in their study was that slightly over 50% of patients who had virus in their airways also had virus in the feces. And the median duration of viral shedding in the feces was 11.2 days longer than the median duration of viral shedding in the airways. And so we're testing people's airways and we're giving them a COVID negative diagnosis once they've cleared in their airways, but these individuals could in fact still be transmitting virus in their feces. And there is a concern about fecal oral or fecal mucous membrane contamination. This is, and first of all, that's gross. Second of yes. all, yeah, it, it, and so Dr. Paul Offit and I talked about this on the show too. He is quite concerned with the fecal oral, almost rotavirus-like spread of this. There's a respiratory component, but there's also a fecal oral component, which means that you have a longer infectivity, but it also requires a lot of close contact and a lack of hand hygiene. What you ha- you reviewed some amazing <laughs> studies. Tell me about this study where they took uh, bacteriophage tracers. A bacteriophage is a type of virus, and and just just tell me about this study because it's crazy. It's about workplace and how we spread things in the workplace and why hand hygiene is so crucial. That's right. There, so there was a study about workplace spread of virus, and so people have done like benign tracer studies, but. To really study a virus, you want to use another virus because that's where things like hand hygiene that work on viruses but might not remove a particle from your hand really matter. So this group did a study in which they put a viral tracer on one individual's hand. They had four controls, so no one knew if they were that person who actually had virus on their hand, and also on the entry doorknob to an office. And And this was just in the morning. And then they kind of let people come in and do their thing. And what they found, and then they tested 68 surfaces in the office. And they found that by 2.30 p.m., all 68 surfaces were contaminated with the virus. (laughs) Every single one of them was contaminated. That's so gross. Um, I'm never going to work again. Never. (laughs) What they did find was that when the high-touch surfaces were disinfected once between when they painted the hands and when they tested the surfaces, I think all the surfaces were contaminated, but the amount of contamination was decreased by maybe about half. And when they provided a hand hygiene pack to the office workers and said, hey, use this, they they weren't dogmatic about it. They just provided this and say, this is available to you. They found that the contamination levels had gone down by 85%, which just goes to show that hand hygiene really I mean, people are going to touch things, but with hand hygiene, you can at least decrease the load um, of virus in the environment. That is uh, really quite remarkable. So it's the cleaning of the surfaces. They just clean once a day, right? Just once. Once. And then told people, hey, here's some gel or whatever, uh, or, or ability to wash hands, whatever it is and dramatic reduction. So these things are doable, man. Like this is just a simple matter of changing our habit patterns and behavior and habit energy. And yet, it, but but instead we'd rather spend $2.2 trillion rescuing the economy from our failure to manage our <laughs> habits. Like stop touching your face, wash your hands, don't poop and wipe it with your hand. I mean, maybe people don't do that. Maybe I'm the only one, but I'm just saying, right? So, the, so this relates, I think, a little bit to what you saw in the... Korean experience, was it the Korean or the Singaporean experience where they looked at healthcare professionals and what they were doing? It was a tool, Gawande's review in the New Yorker. That's right. Yeah. Can you speak to that a bit? Because I've been talking about it a bit. Yeah. 
Sure. This is, I think, Singapore and Hong Kong. And what they, they were fortunate or unfortunate to have an earlier go at this was SARS. And they what they said was that during the SARS epidemic, they saw some devastating things. They saw a lot of their colleagues get sick. They saw that they were actually the vectors of transmission to otherwise healthy outpatients. And, and back then they said, never again, we are not going to do that. And so they made, they had some great ideas on how to prevent transmission and, and overlaid on all this was excellent hand hygiene, following hygiene protocols. So between every patient, regardless of whether that patient carried diagnosis, they were just really careful about cleaning all of their equipment because they understood that there could be asymptomatic transmission. They also they made sure that all healthcare professionals exercised good hand hygiene. They cohorted patients and providers. So the providers formed teams so that if someone got sick, you didn't take down the entire um, division and they cohorted the patients to reduce the likelihood that a healthy cohort would get infected by an unhealthy cohort by interweaving those patients on any equipment. Um, they also, um, they point, and, and I actually directly communicated with one of the physicians in Singapore. They also made a point of everyone wearing masks and masks protect you, but almost more importantly, masks protect other people from you if you happen to be one of those asymptomatic transmitters. And so it was just quite normal for everyone to wear a mask. And at the time that that article came out, unfortunately, um, we were, and we're still in a situation where that's hard for us to follow because of the number of masks available in the United States. But even, even with the fact that they formed a very incredible national stockpile of masks um, prior to COVID-19, because they knew that they were going to need it someday. Um, even in Singapore, they said, yeah, like we don't just use and abuse our masks. We reuse the masks very carefully. And the way that you do that carefully is you gel before you touch the mask, you gel before you put it on, you gel before you take it off, you take it off in a way that you don't contaminate the inside of it so that you can use it again. And they were even had a quota of how many masks per day an individual could get. And they were told, hey, you get two masks, one before your lunch break, one after your lunch break. If you have to use the bathroom, use it during your lunch break. And that's how they were able to give everyone a mask and preserve their mask count. Wow, so it's it feels vaguely draconian, but it's really not. It's actually, given what we're having to go through now, uh, you True. know, it's like, uh, in fact, masks, the whole masking thing has become such a source of contention, controversy, fear, anger, all of this stuff. But let's yes. let's talk let's back up and let's use some reason and, and science on this. So you actually sure. looked at a study comparing N95 to surgical masks uh, for influenza. And it was a pretty decent yeah. randomized control trial. What what did you learn from that? Tell me about that. Yeah, this was a study in JAMA from 2019, and it covered five years of data. They did a pragmatic cohort-based randomized control trial where they had clinics um, over several sites, they had certain clinics that would wear N95s when patient-facing, and other clinics would wear surgical masks when patient-facing. And then their endpoint was to see, was there any difference in influenza transmission or influenza symptoms and influenza positivity in the healthcare providers who wore surgical masks versus N95s? And the answer was 
No, there actually was no difference. Even though they saw the same percentage of patients who turned out to be flu positive, even though at home, the same percentage of family members turned out to be flu positive, there was no difference whether they were facing these patients in, in the clinical setting wearing surgical masks versus N95s. You, because of the way that influenza uh, it's, very, again, very similar to coronaviruses. Um, you would think that the N95 might be more protective, but that suggests that um, that alone doesn't protect you because some of these folks still got the flu, um, mm -hmm. but but they, they, they seem to be as good in that setting, and that was a large trial. There was also one um, study from Singapore in which inadvertently 85% uh, of the providers of a patient who had air, um, aerosolization of COVID wore surgical masks, whereas only 15% wore N95s. None of those providers um, developed COVID. And that was 41 uh, caregivers in that room that got, that got exposed right. and not a single one. And all of them were wearing masks, but most of them were wearing the, the surgical mask. Now, that, exactly. that, this to me is really interesting because it says... It implies, right? We can't really look at causation here, but we're just saying uh, it might be that the surgical mask is protective enough if you do some other things like wash your hands. Because notice both those other guys got, got flu in both groups, and you wonder how much exactly. of that was touching stuff on the thing and then touching eyes and that kind of thing or other exposure outside of the clinical environment. Um, so, true. so this then really reframes like, are, okay, the N95s are specifically very short supply. All masks are in short supply, but should yes. we be focusing on surgical masks, amazing hand hygiene? And what about housekeeping and environmental services? How does that play a role into this? So it is important to clean. Cleaning is very important. But what we do know is you can't just rely on standard housekeeping protocols to keep you healthy. So there was a study on um, housekeeping where this group took the housekeepers that they thought were really good. They thought these are exemplars and they just were curious. Um, hey, um, if we if we go into these patient rooms after these housekeepers cleaned and did their standard protocol, how contaminated were the surfaces? And and there was amazing variability for the different surfaces for the same housekeeper and also between the housekeepers mm. as to how clean these surfaces were. And, and these housekeepers actually knew that they were participating in the study. So they knew that their work was going to be tested after they were done. And so that se seems to show that even, even in the best of hands, it may not be enough. And so it's really important, particularly in these times when you have such a highly transmissible virus to develop cleaning protocols that are above and beyond normal. And and one thing that our department is doing and, and hopefully everyone is doing is taking personal responsibility for their space. For example, radiologists sit in front of a computer. So we're being told as much as everything is being cleaned is your responsibility before you even touch that keyboard to disinfect it the mouse, the microphone, the monitor edge, if you, that's something that you might be grabbing at the tabletop, anything that you might be touching, you disinfect it when you come, you disinfect it when you go. That's awesome. And my wife being one of your colleagues is uh, <laughs> fastidious like that. So she, she'll come home and I'll be like, did you disinfect every single thing? She's like, dude, you know me. Like I'm so OCD. You think I'm not going to disinfect every single square centimeter of that of that of that surface? So so you know, relating to that. So 
radiology in general now. So we're talking about making sure to be responsible for your own space, hand hygiene, these kind of things. What is your take on the radiologist um, sort of role in, in this in terms of mobile uh, scanning devices, portables, going through the halls? These kind of, what, what are the vectors that you guys could be part of the problem if not addressed? So um, the most, I know that throughout our hospital, and it sounds like from every hospital we've communicated with, people are really trying to minimize bringing portable equipment in and out of rooms of patients with COVID. They just know that those are potential vectors of transmission. It won't be never, but really everyone is doing their part to minimize that. The most high-risk device, I think, for us, there are two. Um, one is the x-ray machine, the portable x-ray machine, and the other is the CT scanner. And so um, I believe University of Washington may have started this, um, but several institutions have now developed protocols, and Stanford is going to be kicking its, its off, protocol off either today or very soon to take radiographs through glass so that the machine does not have to go in and share air with the um, with the COVID positive patient, there still will have to be a plate that's placed behind the patient, um, ideally covered in plastic to again, minimize the chance of getting contaminated. But there, but people are looking at creative ways to minimize these like rough edged machines having to go in and get contaminated. Cause it's really, really hard to clean every nook and cranny of a machine. And also with the CT scanner, really developing cleaning protocols above and beyond the normal, even for asymptomatic patients to make sure that every scanner, every surface that um, might be touched or breathed on is cleaned. And, and absolutely. And one thing that you mentioned, you touched on early is, Hey, let's actually, um, let's make sure we don't, do inappropriate stuff. So I'm seeing this revolution in care. We're doing a lot less than we, as a quality person, you know, a lot of what we do is just pure harm. By the way, I failed to mention to the, to the tribe here, Gloria is an interventional radiologist. So she's actually doing procedures on patients, right? She's not just yes. sitting behind the thing. Yes. And so you understand that things we do have consequences. So if we're scanning unnecessarily, so it turns out we're not scanning a lot unnecessarily, particularly at Stanford. We're doing it judiciously because we have to clean in between and be cognizant of that. We're not doing so many labs and draws and things like that that we would normally do just mindlessly to have the data or cover our butts. And it turns out it's probably a better practice. COVID may have have a silver lining in how we do things. Um, so that that's super helpful. But in your interventional practice, I imagine your cases have dropped because elective procedures are canceled. And are you keeping yourself safe with N95 in those procedures? Um, so we're following our hospital guidelines for the procedures. Um, first of all, like in order for a patient who is COVID positive to undergo any procedure requires actually going fairly high up the hospital hierarchy. There is um, people, we really are looking to make sure those procedures are absolutely necessary. And that would be true for an interventional radiology procedure or a surgical procedure, anything. Um, but even in the asymptomatic patients, we because of the, um, because PPE is in such short supply, we are being very careful, at least in the short term, to only do those procedures that absolutely have to be done in the short term. If something can be postponed until our uh, until things have stabilized, then we're doing our best to really postpone those procedures. And so, patients who still need to get done, um, of course, emergencies, um, bleeding, um, and 
sepsis and cancer patients who have rapidly growing tumors who need to be treated. Mm, it makes sense. So you have to triage in that, in that, in that way. And then, you know, I've heard from, I see people that keeping people from coming into the room during codes, just not burning through your PPE, even if you're just using two masks a day or one mask a day and you're protecting it with a cloth cover and all of that. And, and one thing, so if I can summarize some of this and you can fill me in on anything else you would, is there anything we missed that you wanted to talk about specifically? I don't think so. Yeah, I think we kind of did a tour de force here. So let me see if I <laughs> summarize it and you correct me where I'm wrong. So basically this thing is spread somewhat through droplets, somewhat through surfaces and fecal oral and touching eyes and mucous membranes. So hand hygiene, washing hands, cleaning surfaces, and it seems like a surgical mask, if we had the resources to give it to everybody, that might be nice because you'd protect people from people who are infected more than even protecting yourself. In hospitals, sure. do you think we should be advocating, every hospital has its own policy and we're, and we're gonna talk about the shortage of PPE in a second, but assuming we had the resources, should every clinician in a hospital be wearing a surgical mask whenever they're facing patients and even when they're not? What are your thoughts? I think that if the hospital has the resources, yes. And I think the way hospitals have done it is that um, if a clinician is facing a patient who is asymptomatic, so lower likelihood of, of being COVID positive, then the clinician can actually wear that same mask to see multiple patients. Once that mask gets contaminated in any way, then unfortunately it has to go and a new mask needs to put on. Um, when a physician is or a clinician is is in a situation where the mask is obviously going to be contaminated, such as a, a COVID positive patient or in a room with an aerosolizing procedure where the mask is at risk, then that mask will have to be exchanged. And, and I know face shields are also in short supply, but those have been considered as a potential barrier of protection for the masks. Right. Right. It makes sense. And so I've been talking since I did a rant the other day about how <laughs> our leadership has not really provided us enough uh, PPE and our silencing doctors. I'm not saying our leadership at Stanford or anywhere here. I'm saying it's happening. I hear the stories around the country and yeah. physicians feel very disempowered. They're risking their lives. Mm -hmm. Everyone on the front lines is risking their lives. And since then, I've had a few conversations with leaders of large, large, large health systems. And what they tell me is truly, it's a mixture of extremely difficult to hear, sad, and you actually feel for how hard the struggle is, which is there just isn't the PPE available. They are dealing with middlemen in China who are jacking up the prices and they still mm -hmm. can't get the PPE. And this was a failure of planning from back in the day. Like we're not even, even acutely, you just can't get it. It's not, they're trying to throw money at it and they can't. They're mm -hmm. struggling to keep the lights on because their elective procedures have bottomed out. They're struggling to pay staff without furloughing them so they'll have them ready when the surge hits. And mm -hmm. for one of the few times in my life, I had the deepest actually empathy for our colleagues who try to run this thing. Uh, as much as I rant and rave about them, this is a real struggle. So I think it's important for us, like you and I, Gloria, and other clinicians to say, okay, let's look at the science. Here's the bare minimum that we need. Let's work with our leaders to try to get it. And then we'll figure out who to hang after this thing's over. <laughs> but right now we need to we need to get on it. What do you think? I totally agree. I, I, I mean, until our institution came up with these our new PPE guidelines, I was feeling a lot of moral distress having read the literature on on what um, on how COVID could be transmitted, 
transmitted and actually seeing um, what we were being told was okay and not okay based on national guidelines that were continuing to change, I, I, it was, I was, was just very concerned. Um, and so it, it seems like nationally we're all moving to a more coherent understanding, but that doesn't um, get rid of the fact that we are all still struggling to have enough PPE to feel secure, especially as many of us are still looking at the upswing and we haven't gotten into the surge yet. Yeah. And so we, we I think we all really just need to do our part to, um, to make sure we still have, that we're protecting ourselves, but we make sure we have the resources in a few weeks when we continue to need them more. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. And we have to, at this point, kind of really rally, you know, circle the wagons, all hands on deck and trying to everybody do their part to make this happen. And I know it's frustrating on the front line when people realize, okay, there's different, there's different CDC saying one thing, WHA saying they're changing it. Some of this is based on the reality of resources and people are risking themselves, right? Not having the resources. That's why I think it's so important that we say, you know what, if you can use a surgical mask, use a surgical mask, the N95 reserve it for people that are having aerosolizing procedures, um, et cetera. And uh, there may be new guidance for public mask wearing, which is interesting that has been intimated mm. today. So there's a lot of stuff going on. One thing, one story I want to tell you. So just so you guys, you guys can tell, Gloria does her research, knows her stuff. There's reasons that I trust her on this stuff. The main reason I trust her on this stuff is when I was a resident, or yeah, I was a resident in the Stanford ICU. Gloria was a medical student on service. I think either on ICU or on a consulting team, and she consulted. I don't, I don't think you even remember this story, Gloria. So I'm telling this for the first time in years. She consulted on one of my patients. Um, and I don't know if it was his ID or what role the consultant was. The note that went in the chart as a fourth year medical student, which by the way, has no business even writing notes because you've already matched and it doesn't matter. She already got her radiology thing. <laughs> it was the most epic note I've ever, it brought tears to my eyes as an intern who loves notes. I was like, this note, this person's life story is here. All the data, it was cited with like bibliography. I was like, this is the gold standard of all notes. And, uh, and, and ever since then, I've been like, anything Gloria says, I believe it. Because <laughs> I know she's diligent and prepares. So dude, I really, I'm so stoked you could t take time out of your day uh, there at work to, to teach the ZPAC about what you've learned. It's so, so helpful. And I hope you're staying safe. So when you come home, how do you debreed yourself before you, uh, you know, hang out with the kids and your husband? So uh, you know what? I, so I don't believe in getting naked in my driveway, but I do. Um, I do like pre. That makes one myself. of us. That makes one of us. Yeah. <laughs> so I do pre debreed myself in the hospital. I will make sure that um, that I change right before. So if I've traveled around the hospital, I will change right before I leave the hospital into something fresh. And then once I walk in the door, I will then change again. What, what I wear. Um, I think some people hop in the shower immediately when they get home. You know, I get hungry and I, yeah. I kind of have to have dinner before I do that. <laughs> I hear you. You know what? Actually, I'll bring that back to one other point that you found in your data search, which was when they looked in, in China at negative pressure rooms where COVID patients were being housed and they checked all the surfaces, I think you'd mentioned, you're finding this stuff on different surfaces in the room all around, including the air vents, which may imply that it's yes. being sucked, right? But when they tested the PPE on the caregivers that were going in and out of the rooms, they did not find virus except for on one shoe mm -hmm. front. So exactly. that's encouraging, yeah. at least in a negative pressure room. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which hopefully most of the patients will be in that situation. But you're right. The PPE all tested negative. One shoe front, but they even swabbed the entryway. So you figure if the shoe front was contaminating the entryway, that would have been positive. The entryway was also negative for Mm -hmm. virus. And the last thing I would point I wanted to make about this is, again, we just don't know what the infectious dose is. So it could be that you you detect viral viral RNA, but its infectivity isn't known. So there's still a lot we can learn. Yeah. Gloria Huang, what a pleasure. This was a tour de force. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Will you come back if you learn more? Will you teach us? Absolutely. That's awesome. I am going to blow up your uh, DMs by not giving out your DMs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But uh, guys, ZPAC, please do me a favor. uh, Share the show. Leave a comment. Tell us what your institution's doing. And we'll do more stuff like this with your support. Thank you to our supporter tribe who subscribes for $4.99 a month on Facebook or any amount on YouTube. We really, really appreciate it. It keeps this show going, especially in a time when everybody's struggling financially. We really, really appreciate it. Hearts and thoughts go out to all the frontline uh, staff out there that are are working through this, that are heroically working through this. And I'm going to give a shout out to our good leadership that is working around the clock to try to support the clinicians on the front line and to our quality improvement people that are trying to learn as much as we can so we never make these mistakes again. Gloria, thank you, girl. Thank you. And we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.